This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and you're listening to Episode 21. Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the latest research can help in your home and in your classroom. Welcome, I'm Liz, the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and today we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Sandal about concussion in young children, what causes it, what we need to look for, and how we can help during the recovery process. We chat about how to talk to children, about what concussion is and why that's important. We might also mention helicopter parenting and how to balance the need for safety with the need some kids have to get out there and go crazy. Dr. Sandal has specialised in caring for patients with brain injuries for more than 30 years and is board certified in physical medicine, rehab and brain injury medicine. She has worked with patients of all ages injured in falls and motor vehicle accidents, as well as athletes, veterans, injured workers and victims of violent crime. She's currently a medical director for Paradigm Management Services, which provides case management to those with concussion and severe brain injuries. You can find Dr. Sandal's website at elizabethsandalmd.com. Sandal is spelled S-A-N-D-E-L, elizabethsandalmd.com. During this interview, Dr. Sandal mentions a number of different websites that are really helpful for understanding concussion and for checking out whether the nursery products you want to buy or have already bought are safe for your child. All these links are in the show notes along with a written transcript of this interview. You'll also find some free posters to download if you want to talk to your kids about what happens when they crack their heads together or when children are pushed over in the playground. I've created these specifically to go with this interview using Dr. Sandal's guidelines. So there's a poster for what concussion is and a poster with signs and symptoms for kids to be aware of. You can find the show notes at lizesearlylearningspot.com just click on the podcast tab and look for episode 21. Now on to the interview. Dr. Sandal, thanks so much for being on the Early Childhood Research Podcast this morning. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. How can we recognize the signs of concussion, especially when the children are younger and they can't express what they're feeling? Sometimes we don't know whether we should be panicking or not. A concussion is what we call a mild brain injury. It's caused by a blow or a bump or a jolt to the head. You could have a blow or a bump or a jolt to the head and not have a concussion. Right. It has to be a disruption of brain functioning. Right. So how do we know that? Well, if the person, a child or adult, loses consciousness, we know they had a brain injury. Now, that doesn't mean they'll have lasting problems, but Mm. they had a brain injury Mm. if they got knocked out or lost consciousness. The other thing to remember is that the the symptoms aren't necessarily immediate. They can develop in the first 24 to 48 hours after the incident. Right. But back to your question about children, I think we have to group them into the pre-verbal and the verbal children, Right. children who have enough language to begin to express themselves. In the pre-verbal category, I think it's up to the parents to notice changes in behavior or habits that suggest something's not right. Mm. And that could be irritability, crying, and certainly changes in sleep habits, Mm. which happen across the board for adults and children with concussion. And then they might read facial expressions or gestures Mm. uh, that would, would suggest that they 
they had not just a bump or blow or jolt to the head, but they had a concussion. For verbal children, talking to them about headaches, pain in their head, talking with language that is appropriate for the age, tiredness, nausea, which would be, you know, do you feel sick in your stomach, mm. and asking them. Sometimes there'll be worry or, or even um, a lot of crying, too, of course, in this age group, too, that are more verbal. Uh, they might be sensitive to light or sound. They might have some trouble walking. They might have some balance right. problems. Those are the things to think about in this particular age group. What about uh, checking pupils? Well, certainly, but if you have a situation where the pupils are not reactive, you're, <laughs> then you're, you're, in a you're serious, already yeah. you're in a serious problem. <laughs> right. The other thing to remember about pupils is about 10% of people have unequal pupils. Oh, it's called anisocoria, and you can't always go by that. So, that's interesting. So, that's a, my new fact for the day. <laughs> yeah, that's not really uh, probably something would be helpful for a parent to do. Right. I think it's more the behavior of the child and looking at facial expression, gestures. And, of course, if, if the child is abtunded, that is hard to arouse. That, right. I mean, this is call 911. Right. Call the emergency yeah. folks in. Yeah. Right. You said that across the board, people with concussion have changes to their sleeping patterns. What sort of changes are you talking about? Well, that could be anything. Sometimes they sleep more than usual. Right. Uh, Sometimes they have trouble going to sleep or staying asleep. In other words, insomnia, they really have trouble sleeping at all. But the most characteristic is an increased need for sleep. Right. Which is really an interesting observation those of us in the field of brain injury Mm. medicine have observed for a very long time. Mm. And I've always told patients, sleep. Mm. You know, it's good good for you, and you need more sleep now that you've had the the concussion or brain injury, more Mm. serious brain injury. Now the sleep research is showing the restorative powers of sleep. Right. Another whole topic that's quite interesting, the glymphatic system is a system like the lymphatic system that actually cleanses the brain, and it, it's turned on while we're sleeping. Oh. So one of my theories is that, you know, the reason there's this increased sleep demand in the literature, it's called excessive daytime sleepiness. Right. <laughs> Mostly studied in adults, but uh, is because... It's a way the brain is healing. Mm. Now, I I don't have research evidence for that yet, uh, but they're making all kinds of connections with uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease and so forth in this and sleep. There is a lot of suggestion that we should initially encourage rest and allow extra sleep for this brain recovery, but not put people at total rest. I think that's really important, too. So gradual resumption of activities on a guided basis, again, the pediatrician or a concussion clinic. But initially, that that rest uh, is very important. What are the greatest causes of concussion in young children? There's certainly lots of causes, but I'd like to focus maybe on a couple that I think are really important in terms of what can be done as far as prevention, which is a key issue. So 
Uh, most households in the United States with in infants or young children use nursery products. I have a grandson who's 11 months old, and he has all the nursery equipment we will talk about. So I'm pretty familiar from that personal experience. The other area I want to talk about is playground injuries, mm -hmm. because for the older children, that's a key area where there's certainly causes of concussion as well as opportunities for prevention. Right. The equipment, of course, is an issue because there are unsafe products. And actually, I discovered uh, in doing a little research that nursery products are the leading category of children's products that are recalled in the United States. Really? And, that's right. And there are millions of these products in U.S. households. So I really encourage people to go to the Consumer Product Safety Commission website. That is www.cpsc.gov. They can find out about safety issues with these products. But, of course, the other cause is, is children <laughs> and their parents. So there are a lot of opportunities there for, for safety, too. Let me spell out a little bit about which products. I tend to think of recall to be to do with choking issues rather than concussion uh, issues. Oh, no, there are uh, other reasons. And actually, one of the recalls involve baby walkers, those pieces of equipment that allow the baby to walk around when they're really not capable of walking right. otherwise. Yeah. And they could be at the top of the stairs and tumble down the stairs. Uh, there's just been a lot of uh, injuries. Right. So there's an interesting study that came out just recently. The research group is the Center for Injury Research and Policy at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And I, I would direct the listeners to their website because there's a lot of good information, including a guide for new parents, getting your home ready for baby. These baby walkers, it's been a campaign against them. Mm. And so what these researchers showed is that there's been a dramatic decrease in the first period of their study, which was 1991 through 2003, I believe it was, a decrease in the number of injuries from these baby walkers because of the campaign, right? but actually an increase overall in the later period up to 2011. So this was a huge database that they researched, average about 66,000 injuries a year. But now they're from falls that involve the head and neck. About 80% were from falls involving these products. The kids are brought into the emergency room. So these are only emergency room visits. These There could be many more injuries. Right. It's just the ones that are going into emergency rooms. But half of them involve the head or neck. So the kids are rolling out of a baby carrier or a stroller or a crib, and they're falling on their head. So dramatic increase in injuries to the head and neck. Mm. There have been attempts to improve some of this equipment. For example, the cribs that have uh, moving parts, what are called drop-side cribs, right. were banned actually in the United States in 2011 because oh. of the high rate of injury, right? Because the drop side could come down and the child could fall out right. or jump out, yeah. right? So they're, they're banned. And as you mentioned, you know, suffocation, so bumpers in cribs are now considered ill-advised. Bedding, pillows, blankets, and stuffed animals shouldn't be in the crib. Mm. But a lot of the issues here have to do with 
parents not using buckles to buckle their child into the carrier or the stroller, safety straps Mm. improperly used, they're not locking the wheels, or they're putting a bag on a handle. And so the stroller tips over. Ah, yes, I hadn't thought of that. Right, the weight shift, yeah. Exactly. And then infants being placed on high surfaces, uh, like a changing table, instead of on the floor. Right. And once they get more active... And it can change from one day to the next. That's right. There, right? <laughs> you lose <laughs> they, <laughs> Right. You, you uh, never a dull moment, as we say, right? Yeah. As par- parents and grandparents. And I do think that parents are more distracted now. So the main advice I have is don't lose sight of that child, especially an infant or a child that's uh, a toddler, for mm-hmm. that matter. So uh, we have to be vigilant. When my kids were growing up, I always said my peripheral vision was really getting a whole lot better than it had been when I was <laughs> before I be, became a mother. And the other area, of course, with the head injuries and concussions is high chairs and, and booster seats. Right. Uh, and there's another study from Children's Hospital in Columbus that has provided some data on that. And that's interesting because two-thirds of the children injured in that study were climbing or standing in the chair. So they're not being restrained, right? right? And they're agile enough to get up there and Mm. and might be even playing on the chair. So the important advice there is to make sure that they understand that's where they eat. It's not a place to play. Right. And, of course, the chair has to be stable. Kids are so quick, though, aren't they? They are. You turn your back and they're somewhere else. That's right. The issue that you're talking about is we're using these products, but we need to be using them with the safety issue in mind. Right, exactly. You know, one other thing that was mentioned by the researchers of that study is that the high chair is put close enough to a wall where they can kick it. They can actually, especially if the chair isn't stable, they can kick it over. Right. So make sure that the chair is not in a position where they can use the wall to kick it over. Because I suppose, too, they could also be close to the table in that way. Right. We tend to put them close to the dining table where we're eating. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, a lot of people, and I think that I had some uh, lack of knowledge in this regard as a mother when I look back. We think that the tray table is good enough. Right. But the tray is not a protective Mm. device. Mm. It's there for you to put the food on. (laughs) Right. It's not uh, secure for the kid. And then the playground injuries I can just talk about briefly because that's another area where there can be a lot of injuries, including concussions. Mm. And here there's been some recent research, too, showing it's swings, climbing structures, and slides mm. that, as you know, and we all remember playing on all of those. Yeah. And, of course, uh, when I think back, <laughs> I climbed up the slide right? Instead of taking the stairs. There are all these things that can be the cause of injury, especially for very young children in this age group that you're talking about. Mm. And of course, teaching the kids playground safety rules, but also surveying the playground for hazards and um, making sure that your child is age appropriate. And I think checking with the child's pediatrician is really the way to go if you have any questions about 
age-appropriate playground Mm. use. It's difficult, isn't it? Because sometimes I feel like the safety issues are real, but if we try and protect everyone, then there are no more slides and there are no more swings. I know. And you've got the the helicopter parenting thing and you're all just like, oh my gosh, my child can't do that. You're absolutely right. And I think in regard to the helicopter parenting issue, you know, knowledge is power. If you get all the information and you read the instructions on this equipment, you look for signs in the playground that say what category of equipment are age appropriate and so forth. There's great information on the web, the Centers for Disease Control, American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, I mentioned their website. Right. It's really about talking to other parents too. And of course you could do that at the playground, right? <laughs> so yeah, that's right. as long as you're not distracted, right? And you're not watching your child. That's an interesting point because you're saying we're more distracted and people are so often on their phone and you think, well, if you're doing that in the middle of changing the baby, it is easy to be distracted just oh, for yeah. those few seconds too long. Yes, absolutely. Let me just say the one thing about the incidence of concussion increasing. Every age group, Mm. we see an increase in concussion, and that's probably not necessarily only incidents. It may be because people are more aware. So maybe somebody whose toddler fell and hit his head would be more likely to present to an emergency room now than 10 years ago or even five years ago. Yeah, I agree. People understand the ramifications a bit better than they used to, or they used to just say, well, just shake it off or sleep it off. Exactly. Mm. I also have a question about issues such as shaking with young children? Well, what we used to call shaken baby syndrome is now called pediatric abusive head trauma. Right. And that takes more than just some movement that we would call a simple shaking. Right. Now, I will also say, and that's a whole other topic, there's a lot of controversy about shaken baby syndrome or what is now... uh, called something a little bit more academic, shall we say. (laughs) But certainly it takes a a very strong force to cause a severe injury. And there's a certain pattern that's seen on imaging studies and so forth in the retina and the back of the eye and so forth. But I think that um, that could be another interesting topic to cover. Mm. People should not be shaking their children. I I don't mean to play this down, Mm. uh, but it takes a lot of force okay. for an injury to occur. And of, of course, with the infants, less, you know, less yeah. force yeah. can be more, more dangerous. Mm. So the risk gets less and less right. as the child gets older. Right. Ideally, parents should not be engaging in any of that behavior. Yeah. So, uh, and certainly not in infants. Yeah, I just thought I'd touch base with that because it is something that goes in the back of your mind when you think about concussion in young children. Absolutely. Mm. If we're talking about the younger ones and maybe they've fallen over in their walker and they've given themselves a head injury, as a parent, what should I do? Like in that moment when it happens? The most important thing is if there are other people around to have them stay with you until you can really determine whether there's been an injury. Right. You might be by yourself. Hopefully you do have that distracting device, the cell phone, right, (laughs) if you need it. But I think, you know, it's also important not to panic, but on the other hand, to be very observant. Parents know their children Mm. better than anyone else. Mm. So you begin to, you know, the powers of observation are really Mm. important. 
I think if there's signs of physical injury, for example, a laceration or anything like that, the child needs to be seen anyway. Right. In an emergency room. Okay. Or urgent care. If they bump their head and they seem to be fine, crying for a minute or so and right. then resuming Play. <laughs> many activities, <laughs> you know, then, then there's no cause for worry. Right. But again, it's that observation, I think, is really, really the key thing. Mm. Let's say my child has fallen over in the walker. He did get, you know, lethargic and I took him to the doctor. They say, yes, he has a concussion. What kind of things do you do to help with recovery with young children? Like how long a process is this? Well, it varies. The typical time frame that's talked about in young people, and I have to say here that in, in researching this over the years and coming up to date uh, more recently with some of the literature, boy, there's not a lot of research on the youngest children. Mm. You know, there's so much research on sports injuries, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And, and adults with concussions, very little on this in younger children. You could probably assume, as with older children and adults, that uh, headaches are probably part of it because right. that's the most common symptom. Right. And then dizziness and balance problems can be a, a problem, too, across the board. That's fairly common as well. Right. But after decades of work in uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation and brain injury medicine, we're still at the point where we don't have enough research to have a magic pill. Mm. And so most of the treatment is symptomatic. Right. So if you have a headache, you treat the headache. If they have dizziness and balance problems, you look for a source for that that's treatable. That could be some problems in the inner ear that require some maneuvers, you know, to get the little right. crystals in the ear back right. into place. So there are some specific things that we can do, but mostly it's the tincture of time mm. and making the person comfortable. So that would be still the same advice for children. And also because of the balance problems, protecting them against having another injury. Mm. Mm. So in that recovery period, it's really important to be, in a sense, overprotective. Your child is probably not wanting to be overprotected. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's just some general advice. Hopefully, the pediatrician will be helpful. Yeah. Uh, the websites that I mentioned are also really helpful. I think seven to 10 days is said to be pretty typical for youth concussion. Right. However, that's on average. So you do see children with sports concussion. These are older children. Right. Who have symptoms for much longer than that. Right. That's the other thing we're not very good at. We're not very good at prognosticating mm. uh, who's going to be in that group that doesn't recover for weeks or months. Mm. I suppose a lot of the issue with concussion is that the kids are wanting to go out and play again. And so how early are you letting them play? And it's the same with the younger ones. It's Is it just a one-off event or is it that these kids seem to be hurting themselves on a regular basis? Your risk for having a second or third or fourth concussion goes up with each subsequent concussion after the first one. Right. But also very important that the child be symptom-free before they go into an at-risk activity. Right. So, okay. So, for example, soccer. We're talking about older mm. older kids, I guess, although... Well, they play uh, pretty young, really young here in Australia. They, they, <laughs> can, they, can, they can play pretty young, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> right. So you want to make sure that they're symptom-free before they're going back right. if they've had a concussion. Mm-hmm. Now, they could go back to school with symptoms if the symptoms were manageable, but they can't go back to a collision sport right. uh, until they are totally symptom-free. And even then, uh, I think it takes a good examiner to make sure that their balance and reaction time are back to some sort of baseline or right. adequate for them right. to go back. So, because I think some of the second and third and fourth concussions are occurring because they might be symptom-free, but they right. haven't completely physically recovered. Yeah, that makes sense. I can kind of imagine the family situations because the the kids will be wanting to go back into that activity. And even the little ones will be like, I want to be back on the slide. And they'll nag, nag, whinge, whinge. And it's just like, right. oh, I can't stand it anymore. You know, it's, I know. So he's saying be exactly, strong. Exactly. That's why I say parenting is the hardest thing you can do. Right. What's the simplest way for parents and teachers to explain what concussions are to young children? I think it's important to let kids know that when they hit their head, what happens is the brain, and you can show them pictures, of course, the brain is actually moving around inside the head. And so it can be injured even if they can't see that Mm -hmm. it's injured. Mm -hmm. And it can be injured even if the head isn't injured. So if someone pushes them and they don't completely fall and hit their head, but they're jostled by that. They can have some movement of the brain within the head. Now, I'm not saying automatically they'd have a concussion Mm. because, again, it requires that observation or symptoms that indicate that something's happened to the brain. Mm -hmm. But to let them know that this is why we call it an invisible injury. Right. Even if they have a CAT scan in the emergency room, that might be normal, Mm. but they actually still had a brain injury based Mm. on the other things that we talked about. One thing to do with young children is to have them watch sports on television because these collision sports, it's happening all the time. Whatever your sport is in your country or your state or city, right? Yep. I think if they see these adults playing and getting injured, uh, you'll see them slump down sometimes, hold their head. Mm. I think it's important to use that as a kind of a teaching tool. Right. Did you see what happened? You know, another player slammed into them as they were trying to put the basketball in the basket or whatever. Mm. And again, remind them that the head doesn't have to be struck for this to happen. I think it's also important to explain to them what they could anticipate as symptoms. Right. So we talked about headaches. Maybe they can't think too clearly or they feel a little dizzy or sick to their stomach. Mm. Uh, Explain what might happen. Mm. And then again, really let them know that it's serious because although they're more than likely going to heal from it, they don't want to get another injury because then something really serious can happen. When we're talking about classroom safety, when we're talking about how we behave to each other, when we talk about, you know, why you can't push people over, it is often you'll hurt them, but it's usually talking about, you know, they'll hurt themselves on the outside. But this is a good point to remind them that actually you can hurt someone on the inside as well. Right, right. I do think for the younger children, maybe having them get most of the information visually and talking to them as they're getting that information, especially Mm. from sports. Yeah, I like the idea of talking to kids about the symptoms 
because we try to teach our kids to self-regulate. And even though they're young, if they hear it from a young age and they themselves know if I'm feeling a bit queasy or if I feel a bit dizzy, I need to tell someone. Right, exactly. One of the reasons why girls seem to have a higher incidence of concussion in sports that are played by boys is because they report their symptoms more than boys do. I do think that educating them before it happens is really good so that they know what the symptoms are, but also they're being encouraged indirectly to report should they have anything happen. Dr. Sandal, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us this morning. It's been really fantastic having you here. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, and I hope it's helpful. Oh, wait, I forgot. You've got a book coming out, don't you? Oh, yes. We need to mention that. Okay. Now, can you give us the name of your book? The tentative name of my book is Coming to Our Senses About Concussion. Why We Need to Wake Up to the Facts. Is this going to cover all age groups? It is. And all causes and all consequences. Of course, I won't have everything to say about that because there's ongoing work and research and so forth, but it will be much more than sports concussion. And it certainly will include this age group that we've been talking about. Excellent. I'm really glad you've got the book coming out. That will be so helpful to people. Well, thank you for advertising it, even though it's not published yet. (laughs) Well, we've got to have positive thinking. We've got to be ahead of the game. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) It was great talking to you this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you again. Take care. That's it for our chat with Dr. Sandal about concussion in young children. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes to leave a rating and review. It helps others to find the podcast. Remember, you can find the transcript of this episode, links to all the sites mentioned, plus free posters and a video to explain concussion to young children at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Just click on the podcast tab and look for episode 21. This podcast is part of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts by educators, podcasts for educators. To check out more in education, including other early childhood-focused posts, go to edupodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for joining me to learn more about early childhood, and I wish you happy teaching and learning. Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at www.lizesearlylearningspot.com.